Ok, parfait. The real reason, the more important reason, not to do what everybody else is doing, is you don't have to do it. You'll be able to read the result in a major journal. <laughs> It'll happen without you having lifted a finger. So while they're all doing that, you sit down and think about something original and interesting to do. Welcome to the Night Science Podcast, where we explore the untold story of the scientific creative process. We are your hosts. I'm Italian I. And I am Martin Lurcher. Today, we're very lucky to have Bill Martin with us. Bill is a professor at the University of Dusseldorf. Martin is actually his colleague there. We consider Professor Martin a true night scientist in how he works, not in large groups, which operate, as he says, uh, by committee, but by thinking very deeply about a problem by himself or with uh, just one or two other collaborators. And he typically, in this way, comes to incredibly innovative and bold new hypotheses. Bill is an eminent evolutionary biologist. His main scientific interests revolve around the earliest evolution, including topics such as the origin of life, the origin of eukaryotes, the origin of the cell nucleus, often from a biochemical viewpoint. Bill won many prizes, but what impresses me even more is that he just received his third ERC grant, which is the most prestigious and competitive individual grant in Europe. We consider Bill a true Renaissance scientist, having done very serious work in plant biology, biochemistry, and particularly in evolution. And Bill actually happens to be not only a colleague of mine in Düsseldorf, but also a friend of mine. Bill, as far as I know, before you started studying biology, you actually learned to be a carpenter Is that right? And why did you decide to go from there on to biology? Yes, I was a carpenter because it's a good job. I enjoy working with wood. I've all, I still work with wood as a hobby. Um, you can see what you've done at the end of the day. It's an honest job. Work never hurt anybody. That's for sure. <laughs> well, And that changes your perspective a little bit. Why did I quit? Why did I get out of carpentry and get back into an academic career? Uh, it's because uh, it wasn't satisfying. I could tell that was not going to be enough for me for the course of my life. The good old nine to five, it's strenuous, it's good work, it's nice colleagues, lots of fun, but there were some things that I just wanted to know, still wanted to know, and there's only so much you can find out working in a shop. Especially looking back, it's hard to imagine that you would have found it satisfying to go to the same workshop every day, so that makes a lot of sense. You said that having done manual labor gives you another perspective on things? Do you mean just in terms of appreciating the kind of freedom you have to figure out things or also in terms of how you actually approach scientific problems? Well, it's probably a good thing for almost any scientist to have had an hourly wage job somewhere along their career. It gives one better appreciation for how privileged we actually are to have society pay us to do what we want to do, and that's research and teaching. But there is something very special about the scientific process. So one question we really wanted to ask you is, how did you first learn about the scientific method? So when I went to Texas A&M, it was because I wanted to have my own nursery. A nursery is a place where you buy plants, right? 
And I thought, you know, because I love plants. And so I decided to go to Texas A&M to study plant sciences, which is something like botany, but a little bit more molecular. And little did I know, if you want to have a nursery, you don't study botany or plant sciences. You study business. And then you have some cheap high school students doing the work for you in your nursery while you manage the money and manage your business. But I didn't know that. I thought you had to know something about plants to do that. So I went to Texas A&M, and uh, in my uh, sophomore year, my microbiology course, it was Willard Tabor. I remember his name and face and appearance very well to this day. He would walk into a filled lecture hall, maybe 300 students doing uh, second-year microbiology, and he'd have his lab coat on, and he'd be stomping up and down across the stage and reciting to us important things that we need to know. And he said two things that had great impact on me. One thing that he said was, well, there are some people who believe that chloroplasts used to be free-living cyanobacteria that entered into a symbiosis with a host cell more than a billion years ago, and that that's how photosynthesis entered the eukaryotic lineage. This was 1978. And the symbiont hypothesis was still heavily debated. You were still finding papers in Nature and Science that trashed it and said it was all wrong. And so I said, wow, that's really interesting. I want to know more about that. And then I went to the literature uh, to try to find more. But I found that most of what I could find wasn't very good. That idea fascinated me and stuck with me for years to come. And I left Texas A&M when I resumed my studies back at the University of Hanover that was sort of a lead idea that kept me going in my scientific curiosity. It was something that set a compass of things that I want to know more about. And it took me a long time to figure out that that's actually what I want to know. At any rate, the second thing that he said is, the scientific method works like this, Willard Tabor said. He said, you have a hypothesis. A hypothesis is a set of premises that provide explanatory power for how something operates, okay? And the premises and the hypothesis need to be consistent with the available observations. And if you get many of those mutually consistent hypotheses put together, then they form something you could call a theory, right? And then each observation that cannot be directly accounted for by the theory adds a little bit of weight to the theory. And if enough observations come up that the theory cannot account for without adding numerous corollary assumptions, they add so much weight to the theory that it's time to look for an alternative hypothesis that can account for the same number of observations, preferably more, with fewer corollary assumptions. That was it. And I said, well, that makes sense. I can understand that. That's interesting. <laughs> okay? So that's the rules. That's how you construct these things that guide what we believe to be true, right? That's what these theories are. They're things that purport to explain the world around us. But on the bottom line, let's remember, there are no facts. There are only observations in their interpretation, right? One of the best facts that science ever had was that the earth sits in the middle of the universe. It's a disk, right? Well, that was, that was a fact for hundreds of years. Okay, there was this observation that it couldn't account for, and that's that sometimes the planets move backwards across the sky, Jupiter in particular. <laughs> that was a problem, all right? That was a real problem. And then Copernicus came up with this different model, and that seemed to work real well. In 200 years, scientists will be looking back on things that today we as scientists believe to be true as fact. And they'll be laughing out loud. How could they believe such things? Okay, that's the way it goes. That's part of our job, right, is to change facts. If you would have to make a bet on which of our current facts will be laughed at in the future, do you have any suggestions? <laughs> You'd have to give me a couple of days to 
prepare list. Vera Rubin. Do you know who Vera Rubin is? No. Nope. Okay. Have you ever heard of dark matter? Sure. Sure. Okay. Well, so Vera Rubin is this woman who observed that the spiral galaxies don't move like they're supposed to, right? The arms at the outside move at the same rate as they do at the inside of the spiral, right? In contrast to our solar system, where the distant planets go much, much slower than the more innermost planets, right? Mm. Yes. Okay. It's not supposed to happen that way. The outside of the spiral galaxy is supposed to be going slower, right, around the center than the middle part. But that's not true. The, the stuff at the outside is going just as far as the stuff at the inside. So it's turning like a coin or a disc or a frisbee. And the only way to account for that is what? There's some kind of mass holding the galaxy together that we can't see. Dark matter. The alternative is there's something wrong with the way that we understand gravity to operate on very large scales. Maybe there's something we don't understand about gravity. Maybe dark matter is what we'll be laughing at. So let's talk a little bit about how you actually do science. I'm always impressed by your vast knowledge particularly in biochemistry. So you definitely have a very solid basis in what we would call day science or in what we consider the facts now. But to me, it seems like in your scientific work, you are something like 90% night scientist, right? Well, what I mean by that is you're extremely creative, right? In your work, do you make a distinction between a more creative mode and a more executive mode? Okay, This is a whole lot of questions packed into one. <laughs> yes. Okay. So you started out that way. I used to be a carpenter. Okay. So just don't fog me. You can tell when people are trying to sell you something, right? They're trying to sell you some story or some mumbo jumbo or some waffly explanation about how things work, right? With no disrespect towards your area of discipline, a lot of this comes from population <laughs> genetics. Okay. So <laughs> when you get into a field okay. about how things work in evolution, I come from physiology, right? So enzymes and enzymatic reactions, carbon-carbon bonds, carbon-nitrogen bonds, how things are put together, how things fit together, the overall reactions that cells use to satisfy their carbon and energy metabolism, okay? That's where my basic background is. Let's just take eukaryote evolution. Itai, you mentioned Lynn Margulis, I think, right? Yeah. Now, go look at her papers. What do you see? What you see in Lynn's papers is what you've seen for the last 50 years, more or less, line drawings of cells, right? How can we put cells together in a way that sort of looks like a cell in a thin section, right? Mm -hmm. Line drawings, lines as membranes. Am I right? Where does that come from? That comes from electron microscopy. There was no such science that drew cells that way before there was electron microscopy and people could have thin sections and staining methods that would make the membranes visible in cells. Okay, before electron microscopy, people had no idea whatsoever how cells are organized. Mm -hmm. Cell walls, cell membranes, there was no clue. And if you follow the literature of endosymbiosis, so much of it is based in these line drawings, okay? Not based in physiology. How many theories for endosymbiotic origin of organelles or for the organization of eukaryotic cells are based in physiology, the process that are compartmentalized across these organelles? Okay, if you look at it from that standpoint, some things are pretty obvious, right? If you just look at it from the line point, the standpoint of, oh, how can we make some line drawings? Then somebody comes up and saying, well, you know, the chemistry doesn't work. Suddenly that looks incredibly creative. Actually, it's just a statement about low-hanging fruit in my field, maybe? It's just the way I view the world, okay? You seem to be 
extremely creative in your science, right? You come up with novel explanations. It's because I look at the problems from a completely different perspective. As a physiologist, right, people who understand physiology, they understand what I'm saying is like very standard, right? There's nothing surprising about that. And, or they'll be able to point me to papers that said the same thing maybe 50 years ago. <laughs> the literature is vast and nobody knows all of it. Yeah. So this is extremely interesting to me. So you're saying that what I perceive as creativity is really more that you're looking at evolutionary questions from a physiology and biochemistry yeah. background. Yeah, 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 that's right. And uh, I'm not the only one. There are other people who do that. And if you go through my literature list, you'll find that I've written a bunch of papers, you know, with one or two other authors on this or the other aspect. And most of them are microbiologists who are involved in some sort of physiology. And that's something that I do for a, um, as a hobby, because I just enjoy it. I always learn something by writing a paper with those guys. And um, I hope to continue to do that uh, for as long as I'm alive and f also for as long as they're alive. So maybe it's possible that what you perceive as being particularly creative is simply if you're familiar with the questions that I'm dealing with, but not familiar with them from the physiological standpoint, biochemical reactions. If we look at the problems that way, then it's a completely different perspective. And it leads to also fundamentally different conclusions and also puts a whole different set of constraints on what you're allowed to think about and what logic prescribes that you steer clear of. Okay. So energetics, for example, it gives you very clear grounds what you are and are not allowed to entertain as a set of ideas. And so you mentioned that when Margulis drew cells, a lot of that was based on electron microscopy data yeah. that was coming out. So what is the role that new data sources play in your thinking? Do you prescribe to follow the data because new data could lead to new ways of thinking? If you follow the data then you've completely lost control, all right? Then you're, you're putting the data where your mind should be, okay? So- What do you mean? Ah, what do I mean? What do I mean? If you follow the data, then you're letting the data uh, dictate your thoughts. For me, the scientific process is one of questions. And these questions come from biological phenomena, okay? Biological observations, things that we can observe in nature, all right? We can't observe DNA sequences in nature. Right? We can determine them from cells and we can utilize them profusely for all sorts of interesting things. But if you go into data-driven science, like, oh, what can we find in the data? Seek and ye shall find. You'll find a lot if you go down that route, right? <laughs> and, but my view is that... That doesn't sound so bad to, to find. And that, well, it sounds horrible to me because, <laughs> because then you have... Uh, there never will be a time when the data tell us by themselves what they mean. We have to pose questions to the data, all right? And those questions need to be formulated in order for the scientific process to work, be formulated on the basis of observations that are independent of the data themselves. I definitely hear you, but wouldn't you say there's a kind of conversation with the data, that the data might spark a kind of notion, and then you'll build a narrative out of it and then inquire in a new direction. Yeah, boy, literature is full of that, Itai. I tell my students, don't start looking to see what you can find because you'll find a lot, right? Especially when we have so much data, right? Then things become immediately significant, right? Because we have so many observations. That means that we have to hone our logic uh, so that we as humans remain in control of the scientific exploration process. Now, there is something to be said for discovery. 
okay? For example, the electron microscopy was not hypothesis-driven. The question was, what do cells look like? Exactly. What can we find? And we found a lot. The question of genomics, the initial question, was not hypothesis-driven. It was, what is the genome? <laughs> what is the genome? Can we do it? There were two questions there. It was a little bit of a moon question involved as well, right? Can we do this, right? With today's massive amounts of data, it's very easy to get lost. The same thing happens with phylogenetic trees. Right? We never know when to stop. When do you stop collecting species? When do you stop redoing the analyses? You have to set a course, and I like to say hand-to-hand -hand combat with the data. We have to impose our will upon the data. I know right? what you let mean. Them, let I them know who's in control. We pose specific <laughs> questions to the data, obtain those answers, and then go away and publish. I think what you're suggesting as an alternative is to reflect on what you know and develop a deep idea from the things that you know. To formulate it in the way that I mean it is pose a specific question that you can answer by asking specific questions of the data. Exactly. My argument would be that you could do that, the posing of specific questions, better if you would enter into a kind of seeing a lot of things in the data. Okay, words, gotcha. How are you going to look at the data without having a particular perspective? Okay, you don't just open up a file and look at, you know, 180 terabytes of DNA sequence data, right? You don't do that. Rather, you open up and you start searching, you look for this, or you look for that. So you've got some question in your mind that structures the way that you look at that data, just as you cannot go into the woods and just take a random walk looking for paths, or you have to go around this tree or that tree. So as you enter into the interaction with the woods, you are immediately confronted with decisions that you have to make. And the same thing happens with the data. It's a lot better if you kind of know where you want to be at the end of the day, right? How do you know that? I don't address the data unless I have a specific question. Okay, here's an example. Here's an example. Metagenomics, okay? Another question is, how good is the data? Metagenomics, do we want to go there? You tell us. Well, yeah, I don't good. know. Metagenomics, you go out and you get these things, right? We've got these metagenomes or genomic bins. Nobody is mentioning the fact in this huge metagenomics industry that these genomes that are assembled from metagenomic data are binned. They're not real things in nature. They're put together on computers and are approximate things that might be collections of genes that might exist in nature. They look like organisms, but they are stitched together by computers okay, with particular computer programs with particular attributes. And if you change the attributes, then your particular genome in question might be a million base pairs large, or it might be two million base pairs large, or maybe two and a half million base. That's a big room for error. You can't tell which genes are actually in there. Okay. Now, how much time do we want to spend pondering that data without knowing whether or not it's real? Okay. So I'd say you can pose questions to that data. But we also need to be asked, is the data solid that we're dealing with? My entire approach to science is wanting to know things. And so that comes from curiosity and intuition and things that occur inside your head and less so in the outside world. No, I think that is really how most of science works or probably most of science should work is that mm. you have a question and then you look at data mm. um, in the context or, or of you, that question. Or you do the experiment. It's the empirical method, right? We go yes. pose a question to nature. Exactly. But then nature often doesn't give you the kind of answer that you expected. Like often you get an answer that is different from the kind of answers that you were looking for. What do you do when you reach such a contradiction? Well, usually when we start out, uh, we being my group, when we start out on a substantial project, right, something that I think is going to 
keep a couple of people busy for a few years, then we do something that my PhD supervisor, who's a very wise man and whom I owe lots of thanks to, his name is Heinz Sadler. He's still alive and he was the director of the Max Planck Institute for Breeding Research in Cologne for many years. Rudiger Cerf was also a friend of Heinz Sadler's. Rudiger Cerf has now passed away. May his soul rest in peace. He was my undergraduate supervisor and then later on my habilitation mentor. They both were fairly well versed in philosophy of science. And one of the things that they taught me to do is uh, the Gedanken experiment. That is, you do the experiment, okay, and then you imagine what answers you might get, okay? Given our current understanding, right, of the situation and our anticipation of our understanding of the data and the understanding of what sorts of results might be obtained if X mechanism is working, if Y mechanism is working, or if Z mechanism is working, that's usually what we do, right? We look for alternatives to think out what we would observe, okay, if this, that, and the other is true. And we do that in enough detail, right, so that we sort of know what to expect before we're done so that we're usually not surprised. Okay. That's true. That's generally, my students can confirm that. All right. So we know what we're looking for. We just don't know what the answer is or its value. Sometimes we already know what the answer is. We just want to know the value. There's a lot of thought process involved in sorting it all out before we even begin to do the work. Now, this is the theoretical part but it's also the craftsmanship of your science, right? Before I start sawing this board, do I know whether it's long enough, right? Do I know whether I've made it long enough? And when I'm done with it, what angle do I have to put on that end for it to fit over there, right? So there's some anticipation involved because it, otherwise you'll end up getting results that are very surprising and that we don't understand, all right? Okay, so the first thing that happens when you get such results, and tip, this has happened with the, the lateral gene transfer scam in the literature. <laughs> okay. The first thing that we get, we get some tree, right? And then we get an unexpected branching order in the tree, right? Forgetting that the tree is not an observation in nature. It's something that comes out of a computer, right? And so what happens when people see an, a surprising branch in a phylogenetic tree? Number one, they get excited. Number two, they forget everything they ever learned. And number three, they submit it to a major journal, right? Okay. That's what happens, okay? <laughs> but but if, you, if you look around, you look around, it doesn't really add up, okay? But we'll not get into the, the lateral gene transfer story today. Bill, earlier you said that you do a uh, Gedanken experiment. I hope Gedanken experiment, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thought experiment. Right, a thought experiment with your students and you, you think what would surprise you? And that's really interesting because it suggests that now you would know what is interesting. When you design the experiment, you've got an expectation. Now, sometimes you will find things that are fundamentally off the chart, right? That you did not have on your radar whatsoever, right? And you just say, whoa. And, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Whoa. What is that, right? Uh, that can happen. Or the quantity that you expected might have been 10% and what you find is 70%. Okay. And then, whoa, what is that? Yeah. And I think your point is that going back to what we were saying before about looking at the data and the data tells you many things, you wouldn't have appreciated what's the whoa and what's just expected. Yeah. But this is the process of reading the literature, right? It's called mm. research. You go out and search <laughs> where other people have already saw it. And this is one of the things about being original, right? You try to do something that people have not already done. This is another piece of advice that Heinz Siedler gave me that I'd like to give to you, the younger students among your listeners. And it goes like this. He says, never do, never do what everybody else is doing, Bill. There are two reasons for it. Number one, 
it's very competitive. It means if everybody's doing it, then it's a race to see who can do the obvious first. Mm -hmm. And we all know what that does is that promotes actually scientific misconduct. You've got a small community of leading researchers where the papers and the grants are going across your desk and you have to pretend that you didn't know that, right? When you start doing your work, it's very problematic. Okay. So highly competitive fields are always where the ethical problems crop up. It's not somebody doing tumbleweed research. It's somebody doing these very, very hot topics. So that's one reason, but that's not the real reason. The real reason, the more important reason not to do what everybody else is doing is you don't have to do it. You'll be able to read the result in a major journal. (laughs) It'll happen without you having lifted a finger. So while they're all doing that, you sit down and think about something original and interesting to do and make sure that it's genuinely original and interesting and go do that. Right. That's awesome. That's that's very good advice. It's stood me well. You mentioned three ERC grants. Okay, that's not easy to do. There are four other people in Europe that have got three ERC grants in in the life sciences. And um, that's part of the reason, right? Do something that nobody else is doing. Do something new, right? Interesting. And you mentioned going to the literature and doing the research and reading a lot. You know, some people have said the opposite, that if you read too much, you may become too indoctrinated and you won't have an original idea. You won't see the facts for what they are. Oh, man, that's a lazy, that's a lazy uh, no. excuse. Keep going, <laughs> keep going, keep going, keep well, going. They don't say I, don't I've, I've got an all. answer for this. I've got an answer <laughs> they don't for say this. don't read it all. They say just, just don't read too much. And in particular, it helps to come to a new field, and this is something that I think you've done a lot, is bring your vantage point on, for example, physiology, where it is uh, sorely missing in, say, evolution. Okay. 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 (laughs) Number one, number one, you can never read too much. Okay. If you read too much, do you know what happens to you? You become the world's most knowledgeable expert on a particular field. Now that is an outstanding place to be. I assure you, you know, the literature, when you can get into a conversation with heavyweight X, Y, and Z or on stage or in public, and you know, literature that they don't know. That's a good thing. Okay. That is a real plus. Okay. Because it's still in German, it's called Wissenschaft. It's the, the process of knowledge, not Machenschaft, which is the process of doing. Okay. So it's science, right? It's about knowledge. You're supposed to know the most, right? That's what the competition is. Another thing is there's a fine line between don't believe everything you read and don't believe anything. (laughs) Okay. Mm -hmm. Now finding that line is very field specific. It's very individual specific. And it's not easy, and this is part of how you develop your scientific judgment. Now, I'll pick up a paper, and I can tell within a very short time, actually, whether the author of that paper or the authors are trying to sell me something, okay? Are they trying to pull one over on me, right? right? Mm -hmm. Or are they actually reporting something that they honestly observed in nature and trying to make sense out of it, okay? And if somebody's trying to convince you of something or give you a hard sell of something, always beware. And the literature is vast and nobody knows all of it. There are so many examples that come across, right? I get reporters asking me, what do you think about this and that? And I said, well, this was known 20 years ago, okay? So they've given it a new name, et cetera. If you read too much, if you read too much, then you end up basically knowing everything there is to know about your field. One of the ways that I got into eukaryote evolution is that I have a couple of folders called eukaryote origins and endosymbiosis that contain almost all of the photocopied literature that exists on the topic. 
and I knew it all better than anyone else. And that gave me a great advantage. Now I've moved on into other things. Uh, those folders are sitting here and rotting a little bit, but I still remember a lot of those papers. Okay. But it's going out and trying to find something that you can actually hold on to. That's what I've been doing, right? I've got questions that I want to know the answer to, and I can't find the answer in the literature. Mm -hmm. Therefore, I go out and make my own answer. So you said that one shouldn't work on what are currently the hot topics that a lot of people are already working on. That was for, for very advice, good reasons. Yeah. Yes. But when you decide what to work on, how do you distinguish the ideas that you're really excited about and that you think it's worth going into from those that might not be so promising? Very simple, Martin. Very simple. It's very simple. It's what I want to know. Okay. okay. There are things okay. that I want to know. And I happen to know by reading the literature that they're not out there. The answers that I'm out there are not to be found in the literature. And when you start to explain that to an adult referee panel, right, it starts to make very interesting text because then you can actually support your case. So how do I decide what I want to know, right? Exactly. It's my curiosity. There are these things that keep me up in it. How is that possible, right? And how is that possible? And then you've got some narrative for the origin of life that gives you some details. Well, uh, there are some more details that you'd like to know. And isn't all true. That's another thing we always have to keep in mind. Is any of this stuff that we believe true? We mm -hmm. have to inspect and re-inspect our premises every single day because everything that we believe might be wrong, right? Yep. Everything that we hold to be true might be wrong. And as scientists, you know, that's actually our job. Our job is to show what of the things that we now hold to be true is not true. That's what we call progress. In religion, it's not the same thing. In religion, the facts stay the same for thousands of years. You're not supposed to change them. And in science, the job is to change the facts. And the more you change the facts, the better a scientist you are. And that means don't believe everything you read. Don't believe anything you read. You have to be critical. If there are certain observations, that's where we start, for which you cannot account, then sometimes a new theory is the best solution. Not always, but sometimes. And Bill, you said that there are things that you want to know, and yeah. that's how you know what you're going to choose yeah. to work on. Yeah. I'm wondering if we could take a specific example. You said that you used to work on this, but now you work on that. Can you tell us about what you're working on now, specifically, though, how you became interested in it. What was it? Did you hear a talk? Did you read a book? Or did it come out of thin air? How is it that you become aware of something that you want to know? Where do I get my ideas? Exactly. I pay attention. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Other people are sitting there in the back row, sleeping, thinking about what they're going to do, you know, after the seminar. What's for dinner? <laughs> and I, you know, what's for dinner, right? And uh. so... This is one of the things, the activity of the interactive seminar, right? It's gone downhill here at the University of Dusseldorf in the last few years, and COVID is a big part of that. But there was always a challenge for me to try to ask the best question, right? Not the most aggressive question, but the mm. most interesting question, okay? So as sort of a, also Heinz taught me that in his behavior and, and also Rudiger Cerf at seminars, you know, this seminar speaker comes to your institute and flies around the world or t gets on a train for hours to come to your institute and give a talk. And then there are no questions. Well, that's a complete mm. insult, right? It is. So, it is, so to hold yeah. up our part of the bargain as an institution who's invited this person, we have to give them our intellectual best. And that right. means what did I hear during your seminar? that got my thoughts moving most in which direction. Okay, so you pay attention, right? You use your brain, right? 
to ask questions, and then you can use the same procedure when following the literature. Okay, so you ask, what am I doing now? Well, what I'm doing now is thermodynamics. Okay, mm -hmm. why am I doing thermodynamics? I'll tell you why I'm doing thermodynamics, because thermodynamics rules, right? The energy release, if you're talking about carbon and energy metabolism, energy release, it determines whether or not the, the life process goes forward, period. Okay, and there are no exceptions to that rule. And this is reasonably well known. And the fathers of modern bioenergetics are still alive. One of them is named Rolf Tower. He did some very interesting work with, you know, designing, figuring out how the reactions of life take place, how they go forward, how cells gain energy, how the energy is transduced and stuff like that. And I always wanted to know how that worked. Well, now I'm doing it. And by moving into that field, okay, you can pick up some papers that are completely cryptic. Either people are trying to hide things from you, right, how to do it, mm -hmm. or you can pick up Rolf Towers' papers, and he's trying to explain it to you. You can tell very quickly whether somebody is trying to explain something to you or whether they're trying to impress you. Well, what do you find more interesting? And so I'm following that for mm -hmm. the, you know, doing the calculations for the reactions of life. And there are maybe a thousand reactions that are important for most cells, but there are 400 reactions that synthesize all the amino acids and the bases and the cofactors that give rise to life. Well, that's a very finite set. You can calculate the thermodynamics for all those reactions and you can learn a lot, right? You can calculate those thermodynamics under different environmental conditions. And why do I do that? It's because I want to know. I've always wanted to know how that works, Okay. I thought, but I said, man, this must be really important, right? So there are no exceptions to the second law. We still don't understand exactly how everything uh -huh. works. That's why people keep on coming up with new discoveries. One of these big new discoveries is this thing called electron bifurcation. That's it's fascinating. So I want to know how that works. You have to have a better grasp of, of how the life process works. And if you sit down and apply yourself and find the right papers to find the right introduction, then you can find, actually, I begin to understand this. I begin to understand what makes the equilibrium in a reaction lie on one side or the other, right? That, this is also something Rolf Tower once said to me. Hamatim. He, 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 <laughs> I'm not going to do Rolf Tower's voice here, but he said, Hamatim. <laughs> there are, in the reaction of hydrogen with CO2, the equilibrium lies on the side of acetate and reduced carbon compounds. Okay. That statement changed my life. That led to origin of life research for the last 20 years that I've pursued on the basis of the assumption that it was the reaction of H2 with CO2 that gave rise to the first living systems. And that premise, and so that's something that, you know, clicked. That statement by Rolf Tower had the same effect on me that Willard Tabor saying, you know, chloroplasts used to be endosymbionts, maybe or saying that the scientific process works like this. You have premises, hypotheses, and theories, and if you can't account for them, then you have to move on. Yeah, so that brings us back in a beautiful circle to what we talked about at the beginning of this discussion. I still have another question for you, and that's going back to something you said in this conversation. You said that sometimes when you have an expectation and you generate some data and you expect to see a number of, let's say, 10%, But instead, you get 70%. And then you have to figure out what's going on. When you have such a puzzling observation and you want to think about what's going on, can you do that better just by yourself or with one other person or two or a whole group of people? 
Depends. It depends. If you get a very unexpected result, okay? And this is a question for you. What is the most obvious, what is the first thing that you need to think of as the immediate, as the explanation? Well, some mistake in data analysis or in the experiment. That's right. You made yeah. a mistake. <laughs> that, that's the simplest. That is, that is number one, right? Source number one. We did something wrong. Okay. And then you start trying to figure out what we did wrong. Okay. Because that's the simplest explanation. Because if you get something that we really didn't have on our radar, the simplest explanation is we did something wrong. And if we can demonstrate that we really didn't do something wrong, then there's the problem of what is not true about what we believe. Okay. And then you can start to inspect the premises. And then you have to think, okay, where are the strengths and the weaknesses of the collection of theories or the collection of hypotheses that we're working with and which one is most likely to be weak or which one is most likely to be at the root of what we observe here, mm -hmm. okay? But usually, and you know this, and Itai knows this, usually it's because we did something wrong. Yep. Okay? <laughs> and, it, and that's easy to find. And if, and if that's not true, then you really got a problem, then there's something we don't understand, which is exciting, but does not usually give rise to immediate solutions. And Itai asked me, you know, where do your ideas come from? Sometimes they just come to me. I think that scientists, Heinz was a little bit the same way. Rudiger also, you got these things that you really want to know, okay? As a thoroughbred scientist, right? You really want to know it. You're not just out there for a monthly check or, or your pension. You really want to know. And so you worry about it and you think about it and it nags at you all the time. And you think about it on your way to work and you think about it on the way home, either in the bus or in the train or on the bicycle or in the car. And this creates tension in your brain, right? There's this thing that you don't understand. But I believe that our subconscious works on these things to try to reduce the tension because that's one of the things that the brain does, right? It likes to reduce tensions, right? This is, you can, you know, cry about things and that makes you feel better because it releases the tension or you think about things. And then suddenly in several times in my career, I've had the wonderful experience of what I consider to be within the realm of what modest things we do here to be, you know, the excitement of a genuine discovery. And what happens there is that all of a sudden, a whole bunch of things that did not make sense suddenly fall into place, mm. okay, because you see something from a fundamentally new perspective or something that you've been holding on to, right, was keeping those dominoes from falling into place. And all of a sudden, a whole bunch of things make sense within mm. the course of a few seconds and it lasts about a minute, you get goosebumps and all these rushes of adrenaline and endorphins, right? This kind of thing, right? This aha effect, this huge aha effect. That's the best part of science. Yeah, yeah. And then suddenly everything is really exciting. Okay. Some scientists go through their career. We never, ever had one of those. Some scientists go through their career. They've had several. And this is the excitement of discovery. I mean, you guys have had this. And so what's the most important thing to do? Write it down because you'll forget it. <laughs> you will def you have to immediately yeah. write it down because yes. otherwise you will not be able to remember what it was. That's for sure. Mm. Yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm so glad we actually didn't write down this conversation, but we recorded it. Okay. So even if we forget parts of it, we can go back to it and, and enjoy it again. It was extremely interesting, Bill. Yeah, thank you, Bill. This was so great. 
Well, yeah, right. Well, you say that to all the guys, so thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, was it, was, it, was it as fun for you as it was for me? So, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was fun. Okay, it was, uh, I guess it was a good conversation. You guys asked a bunch of really interesting questions. I had a wonderful time. 